Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to the Gospel Addict Podcast. On today's episode, it's my privilege to interview Marty Solomon, the author of a new book titled Asking Better Questions of the Bible. In the book, Marty explains that our modern and limited view of Scripture has impacted the way that we live out our faith, since we often don't understand the original context the Bible was written. Marty is a theologian, the president and director of discipleship, for Impact Campus Ministries, and the creator and executive producer of the BEMA podcast. He and his wife, Rebecca, live in Cincinnati with their two children. Welcome to the show, Marty. And is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about you? Man, uh, you you nailed all the good stuff. My family, my wife, my kids. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's all the, that's all the good stuff. Other than that, I'm just a normal old person like everybody else. I don't, have a whole lot of letters after my name, but I have a love for the Bible, and I think that probably matches a whole lot of people that listen to your podcast. Well, listen, I want to maximize our time together, so let's just dive in. What prompted you to write this book? I, you know, I have always loved to create tools or resources that help us have better readings of the Bible. Um, I don't know if there's ever been an age where we have mastered the text and mastered the ability to read the scriptures. I think it's always going to be this thing that we have to diligently stay on top of. And I, I think for me, I have watched us, we use the Bible to prop up systems that either make us comfortable or keep us in power or provide us influence. And we kind of use the Bible as this tool to prop up those realities rather than reading the Bible as this thing that's meant to provoke us, all of us, no matter who the reader, um, whether it's people trained to speak for God or whether it's people that believe or don't believe, or no matter who we are coming to the scriptures, this should be a thing that always is this provocative, life-changing, transformative practice. So let's talk a little bit about the journey uh, that you are on, your journey in understanding the importance of asking better questions of the Bible. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I went through, I mean, we were, we were, it's weird, this word deconstruction everybody's using today. We were using it back in, you know, 2000 as post-modernity was coming into the world. We were using the word in a different way back then, not completely unrelated, but just slightly different. But I went through shortly after that, you know, early, like 2004, 2005, I was going through some, what we would call today, my own deconstruction phase. Like I had a faith that wasn't working for me. I was, I was coming out of a deep reformed uh, theological tradition. I was trained on the other end of the theological spectrum. I had felt called and led to go to a Bible college, like, which very unreformed. And in the midst of all of this, like none of the categories, none of the handles, they were good. I'm thankful for them, but they weren't, they, they weren't getting the job done for me when it, when it came to the questions, the big questions I had about life, the questions that my, my students had in my youth group, the people in my church had. And I just, I, I was 
I was despairing and somebody handed me some new voices that were reading the Bible and talking about the Bible in a new way. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but really it was people that were just reading the Bible through the lens of history and context. And that opened up a whole new set of questions once I learned what was going on. And those better questions led to better readings, which led to a more robust faith. I mean, the dominoes just kept falling and I just feel like I've gotten to know Jesus and been able to help other people get to know Jesus and experience that resurrected Christ in their own lives so much better when we ask some better questions. In the book, you say that relying on our Western thinking as we read and interpret scripture is like playing the song of scripture with only the left hand. Can you explain what this means? Yeah. For anybody that knows like uh, how to play piano, they, if you have even just some basic training in piano, piano lessons, you know that in your left hand, you're really laying down like a, like a, a bass chordal structure. It's the foundation of the song in your right hand. You're playing what really becomes more the melody and kind of brings the song together. But if you can imagine playing the piano with your right hand tied behind your back and only playing the left-handed part, it, you could, you could play that perfectly. And the song would sound pretty weird on a, Unless you had inside information, I don't think you'd recognize the song. If you played it with only the right hand, you'd probably recognize the song, but it would be lacking something. And so realizing that there are these two worlds, the Eastern and the Western world, when we bring them together to read the Bible, you get a much more colorful, deep, uh, robust, I love that word, um, reading of the of the scriptures that's much more full of life. And I do believe, I love the illustration because I think it... it it does emphasize the fact that there is a hand that enables us to recognize the song. There is a hand that plays the melody, and it's not the hand that we wake up every morning and are used to. It's the, the Western world is beautiful. It's very helpful, but we have to have this awareness that there's another hand at play. There's another worldview. There's another, there's an Eastern perspective that's really going to help us recognize the song that that God's given us in the scriptures. I really like that illustration. You have another illustration that's similar. You talk about if you're in a room and you're on the outside of that room looking in a window, talk about that illustration. That's a good one too. Yeah, that was where I first learned it. I mean, uh, so my one of my teachers was Ray Vanderlaan and he was at uh, one of my, the first speaking events I can remember. Uh, that's how he opened up the weekend. He said, imagine you're, you know, we were in an auditorium and he said, imagine you're you know, at the back of an auditorium, maybe you stood looking through that window for 20 years and you know every, because for 20 years, you've seen it through that window. You can tell me everything about what you can see and what you can see is accurate. It's not that you have the wrong view, but then somebody takes you and by the hand and leads you to this other window on the other side of the auditorium. You would see things for the first time you've never seen before, uh, you know, the a garbage can hiding around the corner you never saw or this, you know, that that view that lets you peek behind the curtain of the stage or whatever it might be. And and he said, that's what it's like when you realize that there's a whole nother perspective. It's not that what you had was wrong. It's that this it's that there's a whole there. Are, it, it was incomplete. There were things that you didn't even realize until somebody allowed you to see it and somebody showed it to you. And that's that's why I think your book is so important. And I, I really hope people um uh, take read it. Um, so why do you think it's unavoidable that our own cultures and contexts will influence how we interpret scripture? And can you share an example of how you see this happening among Christians today? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it, it is unavoidable. And 
And we have to give ourselves a load, like a ton of grace with this to, this as well. Like it is unavoidable. We're going to read the scriptures through our own current context, the water that we're swimming in, the current events, the cultural questions that we're asking. We bring those to any reading of the, of the Bible. Having an awareness of that allows us to like put those, not get rid of them, just put them on the shelf as we engage in exegesis so that we can like look at the Bible and understand the conversation that was taking place between author and audience. And then when we've understood that inspired conversation between Paul and the church in, in Philippi, between, you know, Moses and the people that he, you know, the book of Deuteronomy or whatever, whatever those conversations might, now I can take off the shelf my cultural experiences, my immediate context, and then I can put the two together rather than letting it influence the way that I'm reading it. And man, a, a, an example, that's a good question. Um, what's an example of how we um, well, man, the world we live in right now, such a socio-political bifurcated landscape where we're all just this tribe, that tribe, this side, that side. And I think we bring that to the scriptures and I, and I think we project that, well, is it this or is it that? And we give ourselves these two options that we try to fit so many of these biblical passages into. And, and, and the biblical passage itself is talking about something entirely different, some third, fourth, 16th option that we just we're not even engaging because we're forcing it into the two categories that the right or the left, the conservative, the progressive, the whatever those things might be. Uh, I think we do this without realizing it and unintentionally. That's good. That's good. Let's talk a little bit about some of the different ways of thinking between the Eastern or Hebrew mindset and the Western or Greek mindset, especially as it relates to uh, things like words, numbers, you know, uh, truth, sin. Um, give us some examples of that because I, I find that very insightful because we don't realize it. And I love the example of the water. And I, I, I wonder if you've heard that illustration where the two little young fish are swimming along one day and an older fish swims <laughs> yeah. by and says, hey, how's the water? And then, the, you know, the, the guy swims by and they're swimming along and they're like, what the heck is water? Yeah. And it's like, you, we don't even understand <laughs> the culture that yes. we live in. We, we, we're not even aware of it. So yeah. um, that's what I really like about what your book does. It kind of makes us helps us understand we we do come from a western mindset but talk a little bit about the you know the original bible was written you know with you know in the hebrew or eastern mindset so when you know like like use some of the things i mentioned numbers words truth sin it, it yeah share some of that yeah, absolutely. And it makes it concrete. Like we've been talking about this in the abstract to begin with, but this question enables us to make it a little bit more concrete as far as what it looks like. So things like words. Um, our Western world is built on on the idea of precision, to be able to use words to communicate something precisely, with accuracy, with nuance, to slice through complexity. And so you have in the English language that you and I are using right now, we have some you know, depending on how people want to count it, 400,000, 600,000 words that we use in our modern English today, about half a million words. The biblical Hebrew has about 8,000. So what that means is you have so much, one rabbi I've learned from explains it almost as if like it's a skyscraper. Like if you're buying real estate in New York, there's no room to go out. There's no more land left. So the only way to build is up. You have to build depth. 
Um, and so Hebrew has in one word, you have a, a thousand ideas packed into one word. And that's, they do that by, by making sure that a word is an, is an image. And so like when you think of the word shepherd, well, it's connected to the word to speak, but it's also connected to the word to lead. It all comes from the same root word and you're able to pack man, a thousand images into one word, but it also helps shape the way you understand the concept that the word speaks to or numbers that you bring up. Uh, numbers for us are just static, quantitative, like that is, I love numbers because it's like, well, how else would you understand a number? A number is like purely quantitative. It's literally the definition of quantity. And yet for the Eastern thinker, it's quality because these are qualitative ideas. When they see five, they don't see a quantitative number, a quantity. They see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They see the five books of Moses. They see and they they speak and they communicate through images and pictures. Um, and, and that gives depth and color. It lacks, at times, the precision that we want as Westerners, but it, it adds depth and, and just brilliance to the things that are being communicated and what the text is able to do. That's great. I know. Um, and I can't remember if this is from the, your book or I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. You, you talk about the, the word eternal life and how Westerners, oh, yeah. we, we cannot in our mind, when we think of eternal life, we, we always have to think about life after death, but yes. in the Hebrew mind, it's different. Absolutely. And again, they love qualitative ideas and we love quantitative ideas, things that we can put on a linear scale, understand through a scientific worldview, but they have this qualitative. So the word eternal life, even in the Hebrew, olam ava, or when we get to the Greek and you have these Jewish writers, these Eastern writers using a precise language. See, that's where it gets really fun. Like people often say, okay, Hebrew is one thing, but the New Testament is written in Greek. Yes, but through East by Eastern thinkers. So they're now using a precise language to communicate Eastern ideas. And that's where it gets really fun because when they talk about things like a eternal life and they use words like aeonios zoe is what it is in the Greek. Well, they could use words like bios. Bios is, that's where we get the word biology. Like that's quantitative physical linear life with a beginning and an end, but they use Zoe and Zoe is this qualitative, powerful word, Aeonios. Well, there's other words they could use if they wanted to talk about the length of life. And yet they use Aeonios to talk about this resonant, transcendent, qualitative reality. And they pull these two words together to talk about eternal life, which just changes entirely what we hear when it's either about going to heaven when I die, or it's about experiencing heaven now and forever. Um, and and lots of people have written about that. Um, and and that's a that's a really good thing for us to be aware of and dive into. You also bring out the fact that when we talk about concepts like sin, because we're in a Western culture, we are so individualistic. We always think of it as our sin, uh, or yes. or my sin, um, where. In the eastern, uh, the eastern idea is that it's a community. It's 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 our sin. Anything you want to add about that? That's that's very insightful. Yeah, and and not that it's an either or because it's always a both and. It's just interesting to be aware of where our defaults are. We would always think personal sin first, 
And then like, oh, yeah, and then we can also sin as a group or a community or a nation. It's not that we would deny the reality of corporate sin, but we don't think of it first. In their world, they flip those. They think corporate sin first, and then they think about how their personal um, – I was just listening to a Jewish teacher this morning talk about uh, translating Genesis 43-44, the story of Joseph. And it's so interesting how they – the brothers – Joseph, they talk about sin. It's very corporate in the way that they talk about it. It's very us. It's something that we have done. Uh, we've taken part in our father, you know, our father and then our brother. And there's just so much we discussion because that's the Eastern mindset where the Western world was built on personal responsibility and rugged individualism. And and that those though that's a great example of being aware of what we bring to the Bible when we read it. Because if we're assuming our Western ideas, we're missing what the what the author and the audience is assuming in the biblical conversation. Yeah, and, and our Western culture overflows into our worship services too, where the songs that we sing are all about God bless me, God, you know, they're yep. they're not community oriented. Yeah. Um, which can drive you nuts at times. Um, yeah, we've gotten we, better over the last 10, 20 years than we were when I was in Bible college, that's for sure. I know every every song when I was in Bible college was open the eyes of my heart and me and Jesus and I, me and me and me and I and I and Jesus and God and I. And and we've gotten a little better at that. I think we've grown in our awareness of what we've done uh, to a lot of our worship music. But yeah, you'll still watch that worldview sneak in all the time. Yeah. Well, what would you say to somebody who says... Uh, that the Bible has no relevance for today. I would I I would say it's 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 just a myopic, tiny worldview. Um, it, it's the other extreme to the fundamentalist Christian worldview that says, "I know everything there is to know. I have all the answers." On the flip side, is a worldview that has reacted to that and said, "Ah, well, the Bible has nothing to." But I don't think it takes much, much time or much awareness for anybody to simply pay attention and go, man, there is a whole lot of stuff going on in this life. And if and if we give the Bible even the slightest benefit of the doubt with even the slightest bit of tools, like just just finding a tour guide that helps us just dig into the literary. I mean, we're we're dealing it's really fascinating to, to think about the fact we're dealing with a book that was written, you know, thousands of years ago. And here we are still translating it discussing the nuances of those translations, putting it into a language that we can engage today, wrestling with what that means. Like, I still think of how many people show up for the Society of Biblical Literature conference every year. I mean, the Bible is still this fascinating, fascinating, fascinating thing. And so, so yeah, I think, I think to realize it doesn't take many tools to start to dig underneath a surface layer reading of the Bible in one direction or the other and go, man, there is so much here and, and so much relevance and so nuanced and so complex. And what we do with this is important and what people have done with it is important. And yeah, I, it, yeah, I, that's, that would be my response to that. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know if you're like me, both of us have been in campus ministry um, 
usually when a young person, especially a young person, when they say something to you like the Bible's not relevant, my next question is, have you read it? Sure. And most of the time they haven't. And so it's so easy to say something's not relevant, but you've never even read it. So I think that's kind of interesting. Well, what would what would be a, a first practical step um, to helping somebody understand how to ask better questions of the Bible? Uh, well, just being like the one of the most foundational questions. This is slightly cold and cerebral uh, way to approach this. I usually don't like to answer questions that way, but in this regard, like there's a real basic question that starts to splinter into a bunch of other questions. But to ask the question of authorial intent, what I mean by that is, what did the author mean when they wrote this, and what did the audience hear when they heard it? Like that is the most foundational, fundamental question when it comes to asking better questions of the Bible for me. It's a question of hermeneutics. It's not a question that says, what's doctrine say about this? What does my theology tell me about this before I even read this passage? It really tries to put that stuff aside to make sure it's not filtering what I'm hearing in the scriptures. And that fundamental question of when the author of Jonah wrote this prophecy, wrote this book, wrote this message, what did the author of Jonah understand when they were writing it? And what did the original audience of Jonah hear when they heard that for the first time? When I start asking those questions, it will lead me to questions about translation, questions about context, questions about history, literary devices. That fundamental question becomes about a thousand other questions. And with the age of the information age, the internet, Google, BibleGateway.com, Blue Letter Bible, Bible Hub, like we have so many tools at our disposal and, and a whole generation that understands what it means to ask questions and find answers. So it's a beautiful time to be alive and start asking better questions of the Bible. This is great. We're we're ready. Let's do it. It's amazing the resources that are out there. There, there are so many. And, and one of them being uh, the, the podcast that you put together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Attic Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.